a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. It is time for another weekly visit with our friend Eric Peters from EPAutos.com. Hello, my fellow wrong thinker. How are you today? The wrong thinking is strong with this one, and with you too, I trust. It is, it, and it's all the funnier because my boys have been doing a Star Wars marathon lately. So, uh, <laughs> if we could apply the force to wrong thinking, yes, I, I think we could we could really bring some balance to to this universe of ours. Well, if only we could apply some reason and some calm. You know, that is the tragedy of our times that none of the uh, leaders, and I like to put that in air quotes because they're really not; they're more manipulators have come forth uh, with, a, with an exception, which you and I will get into in a moment, and, and attempted to stanch this hysteria that has been whipped up by the cases, the cases. And that brings us, I think, to what we were going to talk about, which is the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, who is one of the few who has not been fanning the flames of hysteria. Yeah, it's, you know, it's good to start with some good news because uh, everywhere I look around, it's pretty tough to find something worth celebrating. But when we look at yeah. South Dakota and the way that, in particular, Governor Noam has handled uh, the, the COVID pandemic, there's an example of leadership, and it didn't resort to all that heavy-handedness that we've seen everywhere else. No, not only were there no lockdowns, there are no face diaper mandates in the state, and startlingly, uh, there are not mass graves and stacked up bodies in South Dakota either. And again, if the leaders out there would talk about that, it would tamp down the hysteria about this virus. And it's not just South Dakota. We could also point, for example, to Sweden, which has had uh, a much more relaxed policy toward this whole thing than we've had in the United States. And their, their cases and cases uh, are lower and lower than ours, and uh, they have not had bodies stacking up either. Now, back to Noam, she did something truly spectacular the other day, which was to say no thank you to the federal corona cash that is being dangled, unfortunately, by the orange man as well as by uh, the Democrats, which, of course, will come with lots of strings attached. She said it wasn't necessary because guess why? They didn't lock down the state, and they did not have mass unemployment and business closures as a result. In fact, she says that uh, economic activity in the state is at 80% of the pre-corona level. So uh, they're recovering because they never really got crippled, as the rest of the country has been, not by the virus, but by tyrannical overreacting governors and the imposition of this mass hysteria about the virus that doesn't kill 99.5% of the population. Well, and I mean no disrespect to Alex Jones when I say this, but one of the things about Governor Noam is she is the epitome of this rational, calm, uh, very palatable uh, public figure. Uh, she doesn't rant. She doesn't rave. And, and, you know, even if she did, she'd still be right. But, I mean, she's taken the most reasonable approach, and I'm sure that frustrates her critics who, who would like to discredit her somehow. Of course, because, you know, the old saying, there's no money in it. Well, in this case, there's no power in it. There's no control in it. And for a politician, 
to not be in it for the control is really refreshing and almost startling in the times that we live in. And that's, of course, why she has not been uh, accorded much media coverage, and the coverage that she has received has been generally negative, uh, portraying her as somehow an, an irresponsible fiend for not locking down her state, despite the facts that none of this was necessary, which she always points out when she talks about the issue publicly. Now, it seems like episodes like this, though, bring out the sophistry in people. And I'm sure there are those yeah. who are looking at South Dakota and they're saying, yeah, but the reason yeah. South Dakota didn't have, you know, the outcome of these other states is because, and I don't know what justification they would use, uh, low population, yeah. you know, northern latitude. Yeah. I don't know what, but they're looking for some excuse as to why it shouldn't have worked, but somehow did. Well, OK, fine. Virginia is a much more populous state. Uh, Virginia has a population of just under 9 million people, and the the state says roughly about 2,000 people have supposedly been coroned by the Wu flu. So again, do the math. I mean, 2,000 people sounds like a really large number, but in the context of a population of nearly 9 million, it's actually a very small number, and besides which, these numbers that the government, both the, at the state level and at the federal level, are purveying are highly suspect, as we've talked about before, because they're now including almost anybody who dies, including old people who probably would have died from one thing or another, as corona casualties. And then we get into the whole business of the case counts, which are problematic for a variety of reasons, including that the tests themselves are not necessarily definitive and they're manipulating the numbers, and the whole thing is fundamentally dishonest. But the one thing that we do know, and I you know, circle back to this often because I think it's important, is that this virus does not kill 99.5% of the population. So by definition, what's going on right now is mass hysteria. It is not based on any kind of reasonable calculation. And if you want to see the polar opposite of what uh, South Dakota has been doing, just uh, travel down under to Australia or to New Zealand, and you will see the absolute worst examples of what uh, medical tyranny looks like. Yeah, they are actually tackling and imprisoning people for having the audacity to not go out in public with a diaper or even to go out at all. It's literally a totalitarian society now down there. And it's also a totalitarian society in several states in this country. And it's all based on what? I mean, there's a, an analogy that, that might help us to make some sense of this. Some people have peanut allergies, and peanut allergies can be fatal to some people who have extreme anaphylactic reactions to peanut allergies. So do we require the rest of the population that does not have any type of bad reaction to peanuts to wear guaranteed peanut-free suits to put face diapers on because a peanut vapor might somehow be transmitted to somebody with, with a peanut allergy, it's lunacy. And, you know, the fact that this stuff is being bought by a lot of people, I think, has to do with the two things that we've talked about before, the nonstop media barrage of the cases, the cases, the cases, which is being presented without context so that people will believe that a case equals almost certain death and thereby convince the public that there's mass death in the air, uh, that and this, this pressure to, to conform this herd instinct, and the herd now is stampeding. And then the question becomes, how do you, how do you stop a stampeding herd? And that's a really difficult question. I don't know the answer to that. Well, and the, the concern that I have, and I know you share this concern as well, is that every bit that we acquiesce to or every bit that we allow to become the so-called new normal um, just in, increases the ratchet effect that moves us closer to what's going on, you know, in, in uh, Australia. 
Well, sure. And, you know, I've talked about this repeatedly, and I've written about this repeatedly. I'm convinced that this pressure, this push to get everybody into a diaper is the prequel to force everybody to accept the needle and the tracking app that will go along with that. The purpose of that being to establish absolute total control over the population so that the government and the corporations know at all times what everybody is doing and where they are and can instantaneously punish them electronically uh, via, for example, shutting down their ability to buy and sell or to enter a business for expressing wrong things, not just about corona, but about anything. You know, a kind of social credit system such as the one that they have in China, and it's extraordinarily disturbing, and it, it, it just floors me that more people aren't disturbed by it and the potential and the actuality that is staring us in the face. And as disturbing as the official edicts have been, it's equally disturbing to see how many, uh, uh, what can I say, privateer-type uh, mask enforcers have started yeah. to, to make their wrath known on, on those people who dare to go out in public without the face mask. Yeah, which brings up something that's kind of uh, entertaining as well as important. One of my readers uh, brought up this very issue and suggested that when you're accosted by somebody who says, where's your face mask, you can reply by saying, where's your flea collar? Nice. <laughs> the point being that, that well, the point being that, that fleas are, are, are a, 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 a real thing. Fleas are out there, and fleas do carry bubonic plague, don't they? So by not wearing a flea collar, you are putting me at risk of coming down with bubonic plague. And by the way, bubonic plague is a heck of a lot more of a threat to the 99.5% of the population than the Wu flu is. You get bubonic plague and you're probably going to die. Uh, 80% of the people who get Wu flu don't even know they had it because they've never had any symptoms of it. Yep. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, and, and I just hope that that trend calms down and hopefully reverses because it's it's getting to the point where people feel do i dare use the word entitled to go about you know physically accosting and assaulting people because they're not wearing their face mask well again this brings us back to the herd but there's a degree of of sadism and masochism at work here as well because the people who have the diaper on it's 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 demeaning to them and they feel they feel kind of oppressed by it so when they see somebody who isn't diapered some of them will get angry uh, not because of the virus, but because they resent seeing somebody who has the guts to say no. And instead of cheering that person's courage, they want to denounce him. It's the same method or the same, the same form of psychology that you'll see when somebody who manages to not uh, be robbed by the government and is characterized as a tax cheat uh, for doing so uh, suffers social opprobrium. You got what he deserved for trying to keep his own money. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I want to mention that our program is brought to you in part today by our friends at Firesteel.com as well as by the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Eric Peters is my guest from epautos.com. And, Eric, as we were, were going to break in the last segment, 
uh, you were you were alluding to the idea that misery loves company, and mm-hmm. uh, there's I, there's a phrase out there called crabs in a bucket, and and I'd yes. love to I'd love to have you unpack uh, how we're seeing that crabs in a bucket phenomenon among our our citizenry as it applies to face masks. Yeah, sure. If if you know if a crab was in its right mind, uh, it would cheer any crab that managed to somehow crawl out of the bucket and escape the pot, right? Sure. But instead, the instinct of the crab is to pull down that, that crab that's trying to get out because everybody's going to have to suffer equally. And it's, it's really a tragedy because it perverts human kindness, humanity, all of the right instincts, and it turns people into vicious little sneaks and narcs and tattletales who feel that because I had a run of bad luck, somebody else has got to have a run of bad luck. It's kind of like, okay, I'm walking down the street, and a thug comes out of the alley with a gun, and he mugs me. Uh, so that then gives me the right to then lurk in the alley and mug the next poor sucker who comes along in order to uh, compensate me for my loss. Scary stuff. But this is, this is not something new. And I know you actually, you actually had a recent column about uh, the Red Flag Act, which goes way back. And, and yet it illustrates that, that mindset of, well, for the sake of safety and because of mm-hmm. some person's aversion to, you know, whether it be illness or, in this case, velocity, um, everybody has to tow a certain line. Tell me about the, the Red Flag Act and what was the thinking behind that? Well, this dates back to the dawn of the automobile era uh, in, the, in the late 1800s, and it was in Britain, and then there were similar laws that were enacted in the United States and in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, that imposed literally, I mean, absurd restrictions on motor vehicles, motorized vehicles on the road, limiting, for example, the speed, the maximum speed that the vehicle could travel to four miles an hour, two miles an hour in the city. And, and I'm not making this up, I've got links on my site, people can read about this, <laughs> that the vehicle had to be preceded by a man with a red flag waving the flag uh, 60 yards ahead of the vehicle to alert uh, any any potential ob- uh, people or objects in the path of the coming vehicle. I mean, that's... Uh, now, wow. I, I can't even get my mind around it. Now, this was done partially out of automobile hate. Uh, you know, the the at the time, there were a lot of... Uh, folks who despise the idea of these, you know, cantankerous machines that were supplanting the horse. And, the, you know, the pretext, of course, was safety, just like now it's health, which is just sort of the corollary of the safety argument. And it's this, it's this kind of least common denominatorism. You know, so the automotive example today might be that, and this is, this is what was done, actually, before corona all hit, if some 90-year-old lady with glaucoma is not able to safely and competently operate a car at, say, 55 miles an hour, then the speed limit should be no higher than 55 miles an hour to accommodate the 90-year-old lady with glaucoma. So now, because there are some old people who are vulnerable to a virus, to any virus, doesn't have to be this virus, uh, or people who have immune-compromised systems, the other population, the 99.5% of us, now have to somehow be uh, restricted in the most draconian way imaginable, short of actually rounding people up and putting them in actual concentration camps, and we're really not that far from that. For the sake of this, this, this exaggerated, hysterical risk to a very small portion of the population, which, by the way, inverts the way these things normally would have been dealt with. If you had an outbreak of something, what you do is you quarantine the vulnerable people, not the healthy people. You take steps to protect the, the people who are, who are immunocompromised by keeping them in the hospital. And if people go into a hospital, sure, maybe having them put on an N100 or better mask might make sense. 
but putting, <laughs> expecting people to put a filthy bandana on in order to walk into a store, uh, that, it's, it's theater of the absurd. It, it's got nothing to do with health. It's got everything to do with training people to accept this, this medical tyranny uh, that, that is popping up all around us. Well, and there's there's a mindset that comes into play here, and that the the thing that's so disturbing is you know we're we're avoiding death, you know, and and yet failing to live. We we're so that's, obsessed that's with another aspect of this. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so many aspects and facets of this that you can look at, uh, and one of them is just the philosophical one, which is the distinction, the difference between life and existence. Uh, is it worth sacrificing life for the sake of existence? And this, this presumes that this virus is, is the bubonic plague, and it's something that could potentially kill uh, you know, two or three out of five of the people on the, uh, on the, on the planet, which it, it isn't, but even if it were the case, do we want to just exist this way, not being able to shake hands and hug and just see our friends and see our friends' faces, to be able to go out, to gather, to function? What kind of an existence is that, and is it worth it? Does it counterbalance the, the, this risk? And then when you take into account the fact that the risk is so small for most people, uh, the whole thing, again, gets us back to the fact that this is not about rationality. This is about a mass hysteria that has been deliberately created by loathsome politicians and culpable and equally loathsome media that have been deliberately misleading people about the threat of this thing. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And yet, um, you know as well as anybody, those who are determined to stand up to this and to, to try to remain rational and sane in the face of the psychosis, you pay a price anytime you do so. Yes. Yeah, we pay a price, but right now the price uh, is not a bayonet in the back uh, or standing before a ditch with a bullet about to go into the back of our heads, though it may come to that. And I think for that reason in particular, it's very important that we do take a stand for it because right now uh, the risk that we take is that we might not be allowed to go into a store. We might get thrown out of a store. Maybe we'll get a ticket. Maybe we'll get hassled by a cop. I think that that's a stand well worth taking to avoid being, finding ourselves someday standing in front of a ditch. Yeah, I, I do as well. I just I just hope people understand, you know, the the guilt can come from many different angles, including places you did not expect. But yeah. uh, but somebody has to be rational. Somebody has to set the example. And, and and it's not even so much, you know, it's morphing now from, well, you're not wearing a mask to, OK, you may be wearing a mask, but you're not wearing it properly. Yeah. Well, and it, there's. There's, again, facets and aspects to this. You could point out to people the functional uselessness or near uselessness of the standard diaper that you see most people wearing, which does not prevent a virus either from being exhaled or inhaled. That's a medical fact. If you really wanted to uh, take some sort of palliative measure, you would need to get uh, a form-fitted N100 or better type of mask. And, of course, those things are you know, relatively expensive. They cost uh, 25, 30, or 40 bucks a piece, and you'd have to replace it fairly often. And uh, most people would not be willing to spend, say, 25 or 30 bucks a week uh, on a mask, 100 bucks a month. So really, you, that that kind of makes makes you realize that this is more about posing in theater. Uh, if they if they really felt that their lives were in such great danger, why wouldn't they be willing to spend 100 bucks? You know, that's just that's just one way of of looking at this whole thing. I love uh, the line from uh, from your article about the Red Flag Act, about whatever you do, never give fear the respect it doesn't deserve. 
That's not sure, such a that's absolutely. not such a tall order, is it? No, it's not. And if only people could recover their senses. It, it was only six months ago that almost everybody understood that Michael Jackson and Howie Mandel had had mental issues, that they were neurotic, and you felt compassion for them. They couldn't help it. They had an affliction that made them believe that there was danger in the air, that you know it was necessary to not touch anything, to wear gloves and wear a mask, and that uh, all of these sorts of things. It was understood that those people had an affliction. They couldn't help it. They needed therapy. Well, thanks to the media and thanks to these politicians, uh, now you've got probably 150 million Michael Jacksons and Howie Mandels out there, with the difference being that these people don't know that they are mentally ill, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Uh, you know, Howie Mandel and Michael Jackson, at least Howie, because I've, I've listened to interviews with him, understood that he had a neurotic problem, and he was sad about it, and he talked about how he was trying to deal with it and resist these weird compulsions that he had to, you know, wear the masks and wear the wear the gloves and not touch anybody or not touch anything that anybody else had touched. I don't know how we give therapy to 150 million people. Eric Peters is my guest. His website is epautos.com. Eric, until next week, look forward to talking with you once again. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, as always. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to mention that our sponsors include the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also my friends at firesteel.com. And I want you to really take the time, go to their website. You don't have to spend a half hour on there. If you take a look at their products, you're going to see very quickly. They have something that should be in every single 72-hour kit that your family possesses, probably should have one in your car, probably should keep one with your serious survival gear. But I'm talking about flint and steel fire starters. You strike a spark with it. It works even if it's wet. You could pull it out of a bucket of water, wipe it off, <clears throat> strike a spark onto you know your your uh, fire starting material, your your tinder, and away you go. It's really really simple, and the best part is it takes the place of thousands of matches, hundreds of lighters, and you don't have to worry about it running out of fuel. And it's also very affordable and. If you go on their website and you decide this is exactly what I need and you order one, be sure to put my name in when you go to check out. The coupon code you want is Brian, with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, and they'll knock off 10% of your purchase price and you'll save some money to boot. That's firesteel.com. Make sure you tell them I came here to check it out because I heard my good friend Brian talking about it. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, studying history. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on it in the the next couple of segments here, because it it seems that one of the great things that we're missing out on right now is learning the lessons of history. And I think that's the number one reason to study history is not so you can go on Jeopardy and impress all of your friends, although that would be cool. And maybe you make some money in the process, but it's really so you can learn from the people who came before not only what worked, but also what didn't. One of the curious things that you'll find is that there have been times and places throughout human history where people lose their ability to think. More often than not, I'm going to wager it's probably driven by fear. Sometimes it's driven by hatred, but it's something that has been seen and it's, it's been seen in the not so distant past as well as in the ancient world as well. There's a terrific article 
by Jack Kerwick. The Great Unreason of 2020, the curious but quite in, quite authentic inability to think. And that phrase, by the way, the curious inability to think, is a quote from Hannah Arendt, who was a Jewish woman who went on to become a very considerable 20th century philosopher and who had to flee with her family from her native Germany as the Nazis came into power. <clears throat> Once the war was over and some of those prominent Nazis were brought to justice, Hannah Arendt attended the trial in Jerusalem of Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of the Holocaust. And she said that experience left an indelible impression upon her, one that would shape the trajectory of her philosophical thinking. Because what she observed was that, much to her surprise, Eichmann wasn't the incarnation of evil that she expected to encounter. He wasn't some Bond villain. She said his actions were monstrous, yes, but he was remarkably ordinary or banal, to use her term of choice. And what struck her was Eichmann's curious but authentic inability to think. This is how she put it. She said, quote, However monstrous the deeds were, the doer was neither monstrous nor demonic. And the only specific characteristic one could detect in his past, as well as in his behavior during the trial and the preceding police examination, was something entirely negative. It was not stupidity, but a curious, quite authentic inability to think, end quote. So Eichmann didn't subscribe to any theory or doctrine. He exhibited no particularity of wickedness, pathology, or ideological conviction. His only personal distinction was perhaps an, an, an extraordinary shallowness. Now, Jack Kerwick points out, Hannah Arendt was not intending her characterization to be interpreted as commentary upon Eichmann's IQ. Nor, for that matter, did she mean to suggest that he was literally incapable of thinking critically. Her point was that Eichmann showed no will to think beyond the cliches, the memes, the bumper sticker slogans, the hashtags of his day. Can you see why this might matter a bit to us? Because of his reliance upon cliches, stock phrases, and conventional standardized codes of expression and conduct, all of which have the socially recognized function of protecting us against reality, against the claim on our thinking attention, which all events and facts arouse by virtue of their existence. Numerous inconsistencies and flagrant contradictions littered Eichmann's testimony in court. And here's the curious part. He showed no signs of being in the least bothered by them. Now, Jack Kerwick writes upon her experience with Eichmann, Aaron began to revisit an ancient thesis, one taken for granted by earlier generations of philosophers that between the will to think and moral character, there is an inseparable connection. Boy, let that sink in for a moment. Between the will to think and your moral character, there's an inseparable connection. Hannah Arendt put it this way, is evil doing not just the sins of omission, but the sins of commission possible in the absence of not merely base motives, as the law calls it, but any motives at all, any particular prompting of interest or volition is wickedness. However, we may define it. This being determined to prove a villain not, necess not a necessary condition for evildoing. And she continues saying, could the activity of thinking as such, the habit of examining and reflecting upon whatever happens to come to pass, regardless of specific content and quite independent of results, could this activity be of such a nature that it conditions men against evildoing? End quote. Now, Jack Kerwick says, 
It's crucial for the reader to recognize the phenomenon she witnessed in Eichmann. She knew was one that's endemic to human beings generally. In other words, Hannah Arendt understood there was nothing unique at all about Eichmann. Quite the contrary. He was ordinary, all too ordinary, to paraphrase Nietzsche. But this was the problem. As we reflect upon the readiness with which most of America, to say nothing of that many more millions in countries throughout the world, including the Western world, have acquiesced in what, what amounts to a sort of interment that's been imposed by their governments upon them in the name of keeping them safe from getting sick. Kerwick says it's imperative that we familiarize ourselves with Aaron's insights. For there can be no question that the curious but quite authentic inability to think that first grasped her attention in Eichmann is as ubiquitous and glaring today in our midst as it ever has been. It can and has already led to incalculable, incalculable pain and suffering. And he says it's no stretch to call these evils. Consider all that's occurred over the last six or seven weeks or so since the dawn of the great unreason. 30 million Americans forced into the ranks of unemployment by government fiat. Hundreds of thousands of small business owners, upon being forced by the same government decrees to close their doors, have been divested of their livelihoods, robbed of the blood, sweat, and tears that they spent years investing in pursuit of their versions of the American dream. The constitutional rights and liberties that define America as the unique nation that it is, and for which generations of Americans have sacrificed their lives, their fortunes, and sacred honor, have been indefinitely revoked by politicians who pledged to protect them. All of these associations, the myriad of communities that, comprising as they do the whole of civil society, constitute our very identities as the unique human beings that we are. Those relationships that transfigure us from the atomistic individuals of liberal political theory and the two-legged animals of Darwinian biology into persons and citizens, these have been substantially eroded by social distancing. People with serious, potentially terminal medical conditions in need of life-saving treatment have either been denied this treatment by hospitals that have cleared the way for COVID patients, or they've been discouraged from seeking out that treatment by merchants of fear in positions of power. Domestic violence has increased substantially. Suicides are undoubtedly on the rise, though the exact numbers are not yet forthcoming. And news of suicide linked to the COVID-19 crisis have swept the globe since late March and sadly show no signs of abating. Depression, anxiety, dejection, despondency, loneliness... All have been observed to have spiked in the UK and in the US. The wearing of facial coverings in public, by definition, are responsible for re reinforcing alienation, distrust, and fear, characteristics that do not a civilization make. And while the virus is most definitely nothing even remotely comparable to the Spanish flu of 1918 in its lethality, the social repercussions that ensued in the wake of the quarantining that occurred a century ago are almost certainly occurring as a consequence of the social distancing orders being imposed today. And due to these lockdowns of countries throughout the world, hundreds of millions could face acute hunger by the end of this year alone. And by virtue of this massive disruption in the supply chain, hundreds of millions more could face starvation in the third world. Informers have made their appearance in America and beyond, as the panic-stricken and virtue-signaling alike have availed themselves of snitch lines to report violators of social distancing protocols, and on and on. So here's the point. While those in big government and big media are, of course, responsible for all of these types of pain and the fundamental transformation of the country that some are candid enough to admit they hope it brings about, the culpability doesn't lie with them alone. 
the masses of Americans who bought hook, line, and sinker without a moment's hesitation are also responsible for the immense suffering that their endorsement has left in its wake. Ouch, that stings. We'll come back to it in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, I welcome you back to the show and to our growing collection of wrong thinkers. And boy, we are engaged in some pretty serious wrong think today as I share with you this article from Jack Kerwick, The Great Unreason of 2020. And it's based on a a quote from Hannah Arendt, who uh, talked about that curious but quite authentic inability to think. Now, Jack was listing in the last segment, we had a whole list of all the different things that have have been uh, foisted upon us in the name of protecting us from coronavirus. And while Jack Kerwick says, yes, big government and big media share responsibility for the pain and the transformation of the country that we see taking place. But the culpability isn't with them alone. He says we have responsibility for our endorsement of the zombie tale of an apocalyptic virus that enough people accepted and stopped thinking about in order for it to to take hold. He says the great unreason is nothing less than that curious, quite authentic inability to think that Hannah Arendt first noticed in Adolf Eichmann but now held under a magnifying glass and writ large in the average American's response to the narrative of the coronavirus pandemic. Flatten the curve. Avoid non-essential travel. Save lives. We've all heard this. We've probably all said this. Jack Kerwick says the inability to think on the part of the average American who spends every moment living in fear of contracting the virus has rendered him oblivious to the contradiction of of experts like Dr. Fauci, who, despite scaring the public with the claim the virus is 10 times deadlier than the seasonal flu, quietly conceded in the New England Journal of Medicine, along with his co-author, Dr. Redfield of the CDC, that for all they know, it may have a mortality rate comparable to that of seasonal influenza, 0.1%. The inability of the average American, he says, has left him unaware of the world-distinguished epidemiologist's virologists, microbiologists, bacteriologists, and other medical experts whose views contravening the official account of COVID-19 have been suppressed by big government and big media. The inability of the average American has rendered him silent in the face of the harassing, shaming, physical attacking, arresting, even killing of their fellow Americans who they or the authorities charge with being in violation of social distancing guidelines. He talks about the inability to think of the average American, which has made him as compliant as his local grocery store, is transformed into something eerily reminiscent of East Germany during the Soviet era, a place where customers are corralled into lines and presided over by armed security officers. He says the inability to think of the average American, including the average Christian American, keeps him from scarcely batting an eye as churches close and remain closed for Easter. And this next one stings, too. Jack Kerwick points out Edmund Burke famously remarked that the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. His point was similar to that of Hannah Arendt's. And Jack Kerwick says shame on those otherwise decent human beings throughout America and in other formerly free societies that have since been converted into virtual internment camps. Shame on them for their curious but quite authentic inability 
to think. Now, I know you got the sense that well, he's wagging his finger at me. This is uncomfortable. I, I, I feel a degree of culpability as well. Wishing I had questioned things uh, sooner. If I'd spoken up. I don't know. Would it have made a difference? I, I honestly don't know. Had a very interesting conversation with a dear friend the other night. And, and he asked me, you know, how can you live your life questioning the things that you question? Which I, I'm, I'm going to, to read into what he was saying. Um, how can you live your life, you know, engaging in wrong think <laughs> as, as you do? And I've had to think about that over the last couple of days because, you know, at the time it was like, well, pff, why wouldn't I? I mean, I, I feel like I have a duty to if I see something that is is not as it should be. I feel like I have a duty to speak up. And I think my answer would have to include, I don't want to live in fear. And actually, I don't live in fear. Now, I do live in a state of concern because of what I see going on around me, but it's trying to negate the effects of that fear. It's trying to, to see through the fear or at least to, to cut through the smoke screen of fear that is supposed to stampede us in one direction or another. That's why I speak out. And there are plenty of other people who do this too. I'm, I feel such an honor to, to have a platform from which I can speak truth as I understand it and hopefully you know, give encouragement and some light to, to those who are likewise seeking those things. And it's not a burden. I mean, it's, it's a privilege. You know, without getting too dramatic here, I, I really feel that uh, what I am doing with my life is exactly what my creator made me to do, sent me here to do. And I have absolutely no regrets, even though I understand this is information that can make people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, so it has to make other people uncomfortable, too. But that's you don't understand that the, the purpose isn't just to force everybody out of their comfort zone. Or into a particular ideological cage. I speak out on these things because they matter. I speak out because I think there will come a day when when people are going to try to say, well, why didn't somebody say something? And I want to make sure that there are those of us who can say, you have no right to say we were not warned. Hopefully we did it in a responsible way that didn't promote greater fear or greater division but somebody had to speak up. Someone has to speak up. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to be that guy. If it offends people, just know that's not my intent, but I have to do it. I have a duty. I have a stewardship. And I take it seriously. All right. One final thought here. Um, history. Studying history. If there is anything that I could urge the average person to do in their own time and, and on their own terms, get acquainted with history. You're going to better understand how we got here from there. You're going to better understand the mistakes that other people have made. We're making the same mistakes. And when you recognize, oh, my gosh, this has been done before. Suddenly the words of Ecclesiastes, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Start to make sense. James Walpole has five rules for studying history. I'm going to share these with you real quick just because they are spot on. You don't study history just so you can become a genius on Jeopardy. You study it so that you can actually have some context to understand the times in which you live. And James Walpole first says, remember that all historians are biased. That means you need to read multiple perspectives. History is a product of human beings. 
History of the same events and people may be done or will be done differently from generation to generation. Sometimes due to advances in archaeology or new discoveries of old texts, history done 500 years after the fact will be better than history done 100 years later. Similarly, changes in dominant ideology may make history less reliable than earlier historical works. Best to read histories from multiple perspectives and times. And I would add to that, grab original sources if you possibly can. Secondly, he says, remember that all humans are complex, just like you. All the characters of the past were just like you are, receptacles of both good and evil. Remember this when judging them. You should not expect them to be better via via the ethics of your society than you are via via yours. Better to judge them against universal, timeless virtues like courage, honesty, etc., rather than fickle ideology. He says a good phrase to remember is one I recently read as a paraphrase from Edward Gibbon. Their imperfections flowed from the contagion of the times. Their virtues were their own. Next, he says the lessons of history are often not clear. It's pretty hard to establish straight cause and effect even in scientific experiments. So don't expect history to be simple in its lessons. Multiple variables play a role in any outcome. So be careful in drawing out prescriptions from the historical past. I like this next one, too. He says, use the edifying bits. Reading about past persons should inspire you to do great things yourself or to be a greater person. History at its best connects us to our forebears in a way that highlights their virtues, which are often lofty enough to give us an engaging mission and meaning for life. And finally, he counsels, be loyal opposition to the past. Your ancestors and their peers did things that made you possible. They also did things which would horrify you. To them, you have two responsibilities, reverence and critique. So don't just throw them under the bus. Critique them, yes, but recognize the good they did also. That seems pretty solid to me. If you're going to study history, it's helpful to remember that the people who came before you are a lot more like you than you probably realize. Of course, the more you study history, the more you're going to realize human nature hasn't changed. Thousands of years of recorded human history, you go back and pretty much any civilization, whether it's advanced or whether it's primitive, still struggles with a lot of the same things that we find ourselves struggling with today. The names and faces change, the basic struggles, the basic questions about what is important in life. Conan... The barbarian, what is best in life? You know, those things stay pretty much the same. So there's my challenge to you. You want to understand how we got here from there? It's time to crack open history books. Find ones, if you can, that were written long ago. Try to get the perspective of people who were actually there at the time that history was happening. You may not agree with them, but you'll certainly have a broader perspective to draw from. This is The Brian Hyde Show.